Welcome to Business Done Differently, where baseball team owner turned showman Jesse Cole speaks with successful entrepreneurs who stand out in business and in life by thinking differently and challenging the status quo. We believe whatever is normal, do the exact opposite, and that normal gets normal results. If you want to stand out and be different, this one's for you. Today, we're in for a treat, as I'm thrilled to welcome uh, one of my biggest mentors from afar, the one and only Chip Conley. Chip has a storied career in the hospitality industry and has disrupted the hotel industry twice in his career. First, with his company, Joie de Vivre, that he founded at the age of 26 and turned it into the second largest boutique hotel brand in the world. And then later, when he joined Airbnb as the head of global hospitality and strategy. Chip is a best-selling author of Emotional Equations, Rebel Rules, and Peak, How Great Companies Get Their Mojo from Maslow. The latter, which dramatically changed my perception of what matters most in business. Chip's latest book, Wisdom at Work, is a game changer and I have become a modern elder. Chip, your wisdom has made a huge impact on my life and I'm honored to have you on Business Done Differently today. Jesse, I'm proud to be with the man in yellow. <laughs> the man in the yellow tux. I'm sure this is your only podcast you've ever done with a guy in a yellow tuxedo. Absolutely. All right. So this will already be different. And I'm, I'm excited to really dive back. Obviously, you've done a lot in the industry. And I think there's so many comparisons between the baseball industry and the experience that we create for fans and also what you create for you know guests that come into hotels. And I'd love for you to just go back and give a little context for our listeners. I mean, 26 years old, you started this boutique hotel and you became a self-proclaimed rebel. Can you share kind of what you did and how you built it to be different than your typical hotel brands? Sure. Starting with the name of the company, it's a very fractured, challenging name. It's a French phrase for joy of life. And one of my beliefs when I started the company at age 26 is that our name should also be the mission. So the, the mission of our company was to create joy of life for our employees and our customers. So for 24 years, that's what we did is with me as the founder and CEO, we created 52 boutique hotels. The basic premise was the hotel industry is like many other industries. The, the initial approach to how hotels focused on what the customer needed it was sort of bottom of Maslow's pyramid. Let's get the basics right. Let's make sure it's clean and predictable and a comfortable bed and uh, feel safe, etc. And I think the Marriott's and the Hilton's of the world had never been introduced to Maslow, had never imagined that their guests wanted something more than just the predictability. And in fact, they wanted that experience. And I, 11 years after I started Joie a book called The Experience Economy came out and yes. by Pine and Gilmore. And they gave Joie a bunch of awards. And it helped to sort of take what was in my mind, but put it into words in the form of a book. But the basic premise is that over time, the key differentiator for any business, especially if you're in the service industry, is not getting the basics right. That's the important, that's like the ground rules or the penny ante kind of stuff you have to do to do just to be at the table. But what really differentiates things is the experience. It's that intangible kind of stuff at the, is at the top of the pyramid in my book, Peak. Mm. And so whether that's the employee side of things, and it's moving employee up the pyramid from money to recognition to meaning, or whether it's on the customer side, moving a customer up the pyramid from meeting their expectations to their desires to even their unrecognized needs. What I got quickly was that the hotels where we were most effective and most successful were the ones that were delivering on 
sort of unique, intangible experiences that people could never have gotten at a Marriott or a Hilton. And so I can tell you a little bit more about how we created those hotels if you wanted me to, but that's in a brief summary that that's what made you of you a very successful company. Yeah. I mean, I'm amazingly visual person. I mean, we, we map the experience at our ballparks and, you know, we have our parking penguins, people dressed up as penguins parking the cars. Then we have our players out greeting the fans. Then we have a pep band and we try to map the entire experience and how they come into our ballpark and how they leave. And I know you had very unique ideas with your hotels. Could you kind of share a little bit the mapping experience and on how you did that? My first hotel, 26 years old, it's a a broken down motel in a bad part of San Francisco. And uh, I knew that the customer we were going to go after was creative artists, maybe musicians and and film crews and people like that. So the first time we had a meeting to talk about it, you know, here's this 1950s motel that was basically a pay by the hour motel (laughs) full of prostitutes. And I was like, okay, that's not our market. That's not the market we're going to go after. It's a place called the Phoenix. But the first meeting didn't go very well. Our leadership team just didn't, had no idea. Like There was no sense of unity around what we were trying to create. So for the second meeting, I asked everybody to show up with a magazine that defined the personality of this hotel. And I, I don't know why I came up with it. It was just sort of in the moment. I just said, we've got to find a way to align ourselves. And so people showed up. And the thing that's interesting about boutique hotels is boutique hotels and magazines have a lot in common. They're very niche-oriented and lifestyle-oriented. And so... The next meeting, seven people came to the meeting and five of them came with Rolling Stone magazine. And all of a sudden, there's like, yeah, that's interesting that we all, even though we had it the first meeting, we were all at, at odds. The second meeting, somehow there was a bit of unity that was built there. So we said, each time we create a hotel, let's imagine a magazine that's sort of the touchstone of this for the personality or the soul of that hotel. And then come up with five adjectives that define that magazine that can also apply to the hotel. So the first hotel, the Phoenix based upon Rolling Stone magazine, was funky, irreverent, adventurous, cool, and young at heart. And so everything we did in creating that hotel had to come back to those five adjectives. Now, that would be the guest rooms. It could be the the unique services we offer. It could be the staff, the funky, irreverent staff at the front desk of the hotel. It could be the hotel restaurant or bar, etc. So this is a beautiful way for 52 boutique hotels for each one of them to have a unique personality. But the thing that was the magic here, the magic of this was not so much that it helped us create a very holistic concept for a hotel. What we came to realize is that people who fell in love with the hotel were people who would use those five adjectives to describe themselves mm-hmm. on a good day. And so in essence, we were not just in the hotel business. We were in the identity refreshment business mm-hmm. because the people who loved the Phoenix were people who thought of themselves as funky, irreverent, and adventurous. And by staying at that hotel, it allowed those words to sort of rub off on them, and they felt they were more aspirationally living into those words. So not all of our hotels are Rolling Stone magazine. We only have one that's a Rolling Stone magazine. We have hotels that are based upon Surfing magazine or the New Yorker magazine, or uh, we have one in San Francisco, which is Real Simple Meets Dwell magazine. So Each time it was a different magazine and five adjectives, a different sort of core psychographic of people we were going after. Um, And it's part of the reason we became so successful. It's amazing because you're actually, you said the identity business based on your, would you have 52 total hotels at one point, Chip? Over the course of 24 years. Yeah, Yeah, it's amazing. So you're probably hitting most of the identities. You know, I think about entrepreneurs and even myself in the sense that we all often try to be everything to everyone. And, you know, I think about, you know, we're a ballpark, yet we are kind of a rebel. We do things different. We break the rules, 
But then obviously that will turn away a lot of people. And have you seen when working with other companies, you know, when you're speaking around the country, are they able to all find this magazine or the specific identity and adjectives that fit their brand or who they're going after? You know, I think it varies. I mean, there's some brands out there that want to have the singular concept and then just replicate it over and over again. And that's fine. I mean, that's there's nothing wrong with that. It's frankly a lot simpler to do it that way. But I do think that the larger you get, the more you can't be as niche oriented. But I do know that the concept behind my book, Peak, with the book subtitle being How Great Companies Get Their Mojo from Maslow, and that's Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs, the famous psychology theory. That book has been a hit across all industries, all continents, and I've spoken at just about any kind of conference. So it does suggest that the premise of having a, not so much having an identity refreshment, that's the differentiator for us, but the premise of actually having a hierarchy of priorities of what an employee or a customer is looking for is true across almost all businesses. Brilliant. You know, I I do want to get into the hierarchies and then your experience at Airbnb. But first, I just, something I noticed about you you have this above and beyond mindset. And, you know, without even working with you, just seeing your books is the first book I read that had a suggested reading at the end of each chapter, which I did add to my book as well, Chip. I thought that was brilliant. And then in your most recent one, Wisdom at Work, you know, pages of resources. It seems like you're always trying to add value. And I'm sure you learned and developed this when you were working the hotel business. You know, how do you develop this above and beyond mindset? Or what have you seen in your own life to really do this with everything? Well, I think it comes down to just how do you cultivate and harvest empathy for your customer? So let's speak about my books. So the idea, you know, rather than having a, in the back of the book, just sort of a bibliography or something for like footnotes, I, what I felt was like when someone's finished reading a chapter, they want to know more about that subject. And in the book Peak, it was sort of like, yeah, these are very discrete and different chapters, a chapter on on compensation for employees versus recognition versus meaning. Why not have books at the end of each chapter that addresses that? And so it just it was just really empathizing with what a person's gonna feel like at the end of a chapter. And so that was pretty simple. Similarly, in a hotel environment, how do you get inside the heart and head of your customer in such a way to understand what it is that's most on their mind? And we would do exercises with our employees on this. And we'd say, Within the first five minutes that a guest arrives at our hotel, what are the variety of conflicting messages that they have that say, yes, I made a good decision by staying here, or no, I didn't? And then by actually going through that exercise with our employees, and then literally bringing customers into the room after doing that exercise and having them tell us, helped us to get our employees to a place where they were actually coming up with most of the innovations in the company. It was not me because they're the, they were the ones, frankly, who could see in real time what customers were struggling with or delighted by. What do you mean by conflicting messages? Well, sometimes let's do this first to tell the Phoenix. Well, it's in a tough neighborhood. And I mean, I've owned it now for 32 years and the neighborhood is no better than it was 32 years ago. So when you arrive, one message could be like, wow, I picked the wrong neighborhood <laughs> or, or I don't feel safe. Or I feel a little worn out just getting here. So those those would be some negative messages. On the other hand, the positive message could be, gosh, this I feel like I've come home because the staff here is incredibly friendly. Some of my hotels have a more formal approach to service. This is definitely not that. There's on the wall in the lobby are all these really cool Phoenix t-shirts and Phoenix mugs and all kinds of interesting stuff. A, a fun book, uh, like uh, literally an adult coloring book 
that tells the history of the place. It's like, oh, this place is sort of fun. Yes. And so that all of a sudden, that's the conflicting message on the positive side is that, okay, yes, I am sort of in this, almost this oasis of creativity in the middle of a war zone. So what, I, what that means for the staff is we need to be really clear about how to help these customers understand how to negotiate where to go in the neighborhood and where not to go so that they can get their basic safety needs met and then talk about what's going on within this one acre of paradise, um, which is what the hotel is. So that people can sort of say, okay, yeah, outside the doors of the hotel, you know, the hotel can't do much to fix all that. Mm-hmm. But what they can do is create this really cool crossroads for the creative, you know, with a swimming pool and a cool poolside cafe and, and bar and, and restaurant and different art from different artists in San Francisco in every single room. So, you know, there's an element that, okay, once the, once you get over your initial resistance, then you, you're able to go to the next level of the pyramid. Mm. And I think, you know, when you're getting people to come to your places or you think, we think of the feeling of escape. It's an escape that they're getting out of their regular world. And it's like you're creating this on every single attention to detail. And then we've turned it to, I love the experience economy by Joseph Pine, but I also think now we're in the emotion economy. How often do you teach or work with people on how you make people feel? How is that? Are there practical exercises to teach like you're focusing on the feelings? Because, you know, something that we've created, Chip, is we think about happy tears. And I had a young eight-year-old kid, Cameron. I gave him a signed bat, and he was just going nuts. He started crying, and he said, don't worry. These are happy tears. This is the best day of my life. And we've created, like, we think about that emotion. When you get happy tears, is there anything more powerful than that? But it's tough to teach. I wonder Mm -hmm. how much does emotion play into as you're teaching hospitality? Well, you know, I loved back in the day when I was actively involved running the business that we would have. We had something called Joie de Vivre University. So we taught all kinds of classes for our employees. And one of the classes that we taught was about understanding the customer. And an element to that was helping our employees talk about an experience that brought tears to them, happy tears to them. We didn't use that language, but that was sort of what it was about. So tell us about an experience you had where you were just totally blown away by how a business made you feel. What happened? How did you feel? And you know, what was your level of loyalty afterwards? And similarly, talk about an experience where a company or a business you're doing business with or you know, buying from infuriated you, mm-hmm. made you angry. And so by actually literally letting your employees go through their experience of what does it mean to be a customer, helps them build the bridge to how to be more empathetic toward your own customers. I love that. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to put you on the spot here because I think that's, that's so powerful. Do you have things that come to your mind? What are some, I mean, I'm big into stories and I'm sure you probably taught this a lot. I mean, stories is how you can really teach a lesson. Are there any moments that come to your mind that really brought tears to your eyes that you felt like you were making impact or it could be one of your employees or team members? Oh my gosh. Well, so you're talking about a time when I was the customer and, and I was, uh, or, or it could be either way. Something that comes like a story that you're so proud of either at, you know, your first company or with Airbnb that brought tears to someone's, it could have been yours or one of the employees. Oh, I mean, I have so many experiences. I'll (laughs) tell you, I'll tell you one that comes to mind. Um, I was in Rome, Italy. This is with Airbnb. Airbnb was in charge of a lot, but one of the things was in charge of all the hosts globally. So when I was going to go stay in some host's home somewhere in the world, they knew who I was. And so I had done an interview with, I think it was, might've been CNN the prior week and had said, you know, I love Airbnb, but I, I'm also a hotelier and I occasionally miss room service in my Airbnbs wherever I stay in the world. And I love it. You know, I love home sharing, but 
you know, sometimes you just want to sort of stay at home and have the food brought to you in your room or, you know, in your apartment if you're in an Airbnb. And so about a week later, I'm in Rome, Italy, checking into a really nice apartment in the middle of the city, right, right next to the Vatican. And the host, Paolo, when I arrived, he said, we can't offer you room service, Chip, but here are some menus from some local Italian restaurants that actually deliver. But I can offer you roomy service. And then he pulled out this book of poetry, an Italian book of poetry by the famous Persian poet from 750 years ago, Rumi, who's actually the number one selling poet in the U.S. today, even though he died 750 years ago. And he said, I can't offer you room service, but I can offer you roomy service. Um, this is a uh, book of Rumi poetry in Italian. You're welcome to take it with you. And I was like, wow, you did two things. Number one is you actually knew, based upon that CNN interview I did, that I do miss room service. And you've given me some actual menus of local restaurants that will deliver. And then you also have done some research showing me to, to know that I love roomy poetry. That's a great example of how I'll never forget that. And, and of course, I talked about that a lot. And, you know, Paolo, his listing was full for the next three years after that. <laughs> uh, so, was. You, know, you know, the word of, it used to be word of mouth. And now mm-hmm. it's word of mouse, although no one uses a mouse anymore. But it's generally... The idea is, you know, what used to be just voice to voice is now through the digital world can go virtual and can go viral very quickly mm. when somebody has a great or a bad experience. You know, it's, uh, as I heard from Darren Ross with the Magic Castle Hotel, listen carefully, but respond creatively. And if you mm-hmm. listen to these things, it's how do you respond? Oh, oh they got something going on this weekend. Well, what are you going to do to make it better? And it's those simple gestures. I mean, he didn't go tremendously out of his way, but he just showed that he cared. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. What about the craziest thing you've done for a customer or something that stood out? You know, I, I call this segment crazy train because I think of things that are absolutely crazy or anything that you've done or had your team do. That's just like, well, it's a little over the top. It's a funny thing because there's so many examples. I think someone had their wedding ring and a bunch of really valuable things that they left in a hotel room on their way back to Hong Kong. And this person was so traumatized. They'd never traveled internationally. And they left a really important bag in the hotel. They, they took their suitcase, but they forgot this bag, which frankly had family heirlooms and things that they just were so scared it was just going to get lost. And so we literally sent an employee on a plane to Hong Kong with it to hand deliver the bag back to this guest who we had never had as a guest before. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, yes, the guest actually did pay for the flight. Otherwise, there's some things that don't make a whole lot of sense. And there's the famous Nordstrom story about Nordstrom's was famous for the fact that they, you know, if you return something to Nordstrom's, they'll always take it. So someone returned an actual tire um, to Nordstrom's. Nordstrom's doesn't sell tires. And said, will you take this? And they said, sure. Now, of course, that's a folkloric story <laughs> that helped Nordstrom's build its reputation for great service. But the truth is, it's also a stupid story because Nordstrom doesn't sell tires, so you don't want your employees taking back things. <laughs> Similarly, I doubt I would have sent our employee to Hong Kong if the guest had said, I'm not going to pay for the flight. Yes. But to actually have, basically take an employee and, and take three days out of their life to do the round trip travel, to actually hand deliver it to this person in Hong Kong made a huge difference. Mm-hmm. And uh, turns out that guest was somebody I didn't know at the time, somebody who was very influential in the Asian travel market. And all of a sudden that hotel ended up getting a lot more Asian guests 
uh, traveling, staying at that hotel. Oh, I love it. Well, see, I, I'm so fascinated by stories because I think once those get told, my staff, you know, we're all 22 to 27 years old, and they said, Jesse, I could get on stage and share the stories you share over and over again. I'm, I'm like, great. That, you know, confirms our culture and who we are and what we stand for. And people resonate with stories. So, you know, I know you have tons of them, but we've actually started creating a story bank. All the stories that happen every year, we call them fans first moments. And we write them down and we actually record videos, interview our staff telling them. And that's how we educate, you know, our new people coming in. And I'm sure you've done lots of that, but that's, that's just giving a little preface on why I'm so fascinated by stories. Yeah, you know, you and I have a lot in common. <laughs> Although my wardrobe is not quite as interesting. Yeah, and I own seven of these yellow tuxedos, Chip. But I, I've I, seen you a lot in black t-shirts, so I'm sure you kind of you stay true to that a little bit, don't you? I do. I, I'm glad to hear you have seven. I was a little worried. I was. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. All right, we got to go into the, the employee experience, and obviously your turn as a now a mentor over five years with Airbnb, or almost five years, correct? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Uh, actually, almost six. Almost six. Unbelievable. And you yeah. did it all, and I've heard you know fascinating stories about the one Airbnb and all those events and festivals and your love for that. But you know, simply going back to what you created in Peak, the pyramid of money, recognition, and meaning. Share how that kind of came full circle working at Airbnb. And, you know, I'm always fascinated. How do you drive people towards meaning? And how did your meaning change as you went to Airbnb? So, you know, it was an interesting process to go from being a hotel. You know, I sold the management company and brand of Gerard of Eve in 2010 to John Pritzker, whose father started Hyatt. Yes. And um, it was a couple of years later that I, I joined Airbnb. And I still owned some real estate, some hotels. I actually still owned with partners about 20 hotels. I now own only nine. So I was still a hotelier while also going and becoming the mentor to the founders of Airbnb and becoming head of global hospitality and strategy. What I had to really get used to was the idea in a hotel, it was our employees providing the service. Mm-hmm. But at Airbnb, it was these micro entrepreneurs who were hosts <laughs> in 191 countries. So whereas at Air- <laughs> All of our hotels were in California. Most of our hotels were in Northern California. We were a very geographically-centric company. So I got to know our employees really well face-to-face. At Airbnb, there were like there were millions of hosts around the world, <laughs> and I was never going to meet them all. And I, can't, I couldn't go one-on-one, and, and they weren't our employees. And so it was a really different model, but it, was a, it allowed me to take the peak model that I used at Jorariv and apply it to the Airbnb hosts. And again, it was money, recognition, meaning. The baseline for hosts was they wanted to make sure they were well compensated and doing well enough. But that was for some hosts, that was not the reason they were doing it. Mm. it. You know, the reason they were doing it was because they loved the connection, the social connection they were making with their guests. So that was a step above that. And then the meaning piece was really the intrinsic motivation you get when you feel like you've turned a stranger into a friend. Mm. So what we did is we started to use the peak model and apply it to the incentives and motivations of Airbnb hosts around the world. And we created the Superhost program, which is a program program that allowed our best hosts in the world to feel like they're recognized once a quarter. And we did a whole collection of other things too. We improved the peer-to-peer review system so people could feel more more of a sense of recognition. Mm. And we told stories, you know, like you do, of the kind of relationships people were able to make by either being a guest or a host on the platform. Mm. In in some, it just allowed us to use humanity as sort of the business model, the operating model for how we did do the business. Mm. And um, you know, Airbnb now is the largest hospitality company in the world. It's amazing. You know, in all prefaces, my, my wife actually owns two Airbnbs and it's not the money. 
it's the connection, the relationship that she gets to talk to people. I'm like, oh, I just made her day. And she always, yep. you know, she puts our fans first mentality. She always has surprises and she listens what they're celebrating. She asks and she puts an extra money into, a, you know, how they're greeted when they come in. What's the note? What are the special giveaways, the food, the drinks, you know, the wine to celebrate? You know, she's had gifts delivered. I mean, and that means everything to her. And I think what you've been able to set up is a system where they actually get to feel it. The more the reviews, the recognition, where it feels like you actually are making a difference, which then provides meaning. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I think when you look at Airbnb, I'd love to know what makes it special from an employee perspective. You know, there were a few things in your wisdom at work that you shared about how everyone had to teach something and you taught about your love of festivals and people taught different things. You know, that's a really unique thing. I love that. It's not just teaching something in the business, it's teaching something else they know. What were some other unique things that you did with the employees and the founders that really brought the culture yeah. together? Well, on the culture side, we created two things. One was the Airbnb Open, which you alluded to earlier, which was really focused on our most active Airbnb hosts in the world. But within the company, we created something called One Airbnb, which was an annual, or actually we ultimately took it to every two-year event where all of our employees, and the last one we did had 3,200 employees from around the world from 22 offices come to San Francisco and have a four-day festival of how they got re-engaged and inspired by the company's mission. And it allowed us to have all of our employees to actively be involved in looking at the strategy for moving forward. So the idea that you bring your employees together, like, you know, not everybody has 22 offices around the world. Yes. Just assume you just have one office and you've got 10 people in it. You know, the idea that you can do an offsite retreat with all of your employees, not just your three top leaders, but everybody to actually talk about where you're going and what you're doing is really important. There's two kinds of meaning. There's meaning at work and there's meaning in work. Meaning at work means that you understand the purpose of the company and you feel very inspired by it. And so like a social enterprise or a nonprofit that has a, a great mission could do that. At Airbnb, it was our belong anywhere message to help the idea of taking down the sense of you know, walls and boundaries for people so they actually can feel across borders closer to each other. And then there's meaning in work. Meaning in work means that the work you're doing on a daily basis inspires you and you can see the connection of the work you're doing to the overall purpose of the organization. And that's the part that's really hard. I think it's actually one thing to get excited about the meaning at work, the purpose of the business. It's another thing to actually connect your daily activities so that you can see how you're influencing things. So let me give you an example yes. of that. When we were in the depths of the dot-com bust in the Bay Area a bunch of years ago, one of the things we noticed is that Many of our employees felt disconnected from our guests and what made their, our guests love their hotel. So we had a, a monthly meeting where all of our employees in the hotel would come together. And we decided to end that employee meeting each month with having a one or two regular hotel guests who happened to be staying in that hotel at that time come and tell their story for five minutes about why do they love the Hotel Rex or the Galleria Park Hotel? What is it about that hotel? And we, we would instruct the uh, guest in advance to at least bring up two to three names of specific people in the room that have done something uh, that has helped that guest feel like this is my home away from home. And the idea of employees hearing why a guest loves their hotel and some of the specific activities 
that helped create that loyalty mm-hmm. is a really simple way and a free way because it didn't cost us anything to have that to have the guests tell the story. It's a free way of your employees understanding your meaning in work, the understanding of how the work they do impacts the overall success of the business and its purpose. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think of that even with us, it's having our fans, you know, if we have 100,000 fans come to our games every year, picking, you know, a few, maybe it could be quarterly, it could be one big event, and just having them share with the group, because I, I think that's amazing, because we can talk about all the emails and the letters that we get as, you know, the owners and the founders of the company, but they don't necessarily get to feel it unless someone's there mentioning their name. Yeah, I agree. Oh, that's brilliant. All right, I want to get into Modern Elder, but first, I just, I'm fascinated with Brian Chesky. I think he's mm-hmm. a very unique individual in how he learns and goes to the source. And you worked directly with him for many years. What made him different than most people you worked with? First of all, when he approached me almost six years ago, I was not in a place where I had to work. I was lucky enough I'd sold the company. Now, I'd sold it at the bottom of the recession, so it wasn't like as big of a payout as it could have been if I'd waited three or four more years, but I, I was ready to move on. So when Brian reached out to me, I was just really touched by how curious he was. He had such a growth mindset. He just wanted to learn. And so he would always go to whoever in the world he thought was the best person to learn from on that particular subject. At that time, six years ago, Airbnb was perceived as being just a small tech company that was fast growing. Nobody really called it a hospitality company. So he wanted to look at how could he take his company and turn it from a tech company into a hospitality company. Uh, And so he sought me out. And I think more than anything, I really loved the purpose of the company of trying to belong anywhere. Probably people belong anywhere. And I was impressed by how fast they were growing. I didn't quite understand the business model completely. For me, I was like a hotel stalwart. I was like, hey, why would anybody want to stay in someone else's home? But (laughs) over time, I started to understand it, especially if you're staying for an extended stay. I think one of the things that people don't understand is that Airbnb, you know, a large percentage of our rooms, our room nights, is people staying a week or longer. And often, if you're staying a week or longer somewhere or a month or longer, you don't want to stay in a tiny little hotel room. Mm -hmm. And you want to stay in a place that's going to be more personalized and where you can live like a local and get to know people and the area better. And so um, I ultimately, I would say that it was not the business plan that, that sold me on coming and joining Airbnb. It was really Brian as a person. And we spent the last six years um, sort of bound at the hip. Mm. If anybody wanted to sort of understand the relationship between someone who's like me, I was 21 years older than Brian. I was his mentor in-house, but I also reported to Brian. He was the CEO. So if you want to sort of understand what that relationship's like, there's a video from the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco where we're on stage with a moderator talking about that relationship. And it's really quite eloquent in showing how that relationship across generations can work. Mm-hmm. I think I'll, I'll definitely share that because that sounds amazing. And, and I, you know, I guess my question with Brian Chesky and say, I mean, he's got one of the biggest, most successful companies, the founder of it. You know, he can knock on doors and call Warren Buffett and get a two-hour meeting and call you and get it. And I think with your book, Wisdom at Work, it shares mm-hmm. the process of what you call a modern elder from evolving to learning to collaborating and counseling. But I'm thinking about myself and, and young people that maybe don't have the name or the clout of a Brian Chesky. How would they go about finding a modern elder or a mentor to help them? What, what would you suggest? I'm sure you've got to ask that question before, Chip. Well, let's be clear. Brian Chesky was not always successful. I mean, he was started the company uh, with his co-founders at age 26. Yes. And he was going out and talking to people before Airbnb had any kind of name. So, yes. you know, some of it is just, being shameless, uh, <laughs> you know, not feeling hesitant about actually going at least making the ask. 
part of it's also you just feel the enthusiasm of someone. So I would just say for people who are thinking about that, look to someone out there who you see is wise and you admire, who's a role model. It's quite often that that person's going to be extremely busy. So differentiate yourself a little bit in terms of, you know, Jesse, you did that with me. I'm a very busy person. And, but, you know, whether it's the videos you've sent me or just telling me the story of your business and, and how you're, you're a storyteller now for other small entrepreneurs and all of that gives me the sense that I want to give back. Mm. So I want to give back to you and then you give back to someone else. It's what I call karmic capitalism. Mm. What goes around comes around. And so I feel like karmic debt to the young entrepreneurs of the world, partly because when I was a young entrepreneur, I reached out to a guy named Herb Kelleher, who <laughs> is the founder and CEO, or one of the co-founders and CEO of Southwest Airlines. He was the CEO for 37 years. And I would write him letters. It was like a pen pal relationship because this is way before you know cell phones or before computers or internet or email, et cetera. And so I would write him. And three or four weeks later, I'd get a letter back from him and he was my mentor by pen pal. Mm -hmm. And so I think for many people, we just realize part of our opportunity to learn how we've gotten wise is sharing it with someone else. Mm -hmm. And the best teachers are great learners. A hundred percent. You know, I think when I get reached out to by young sports management majors or people getting in the business, I have more joy in helping and teaching them and seeing, you know, light bulbs go off than almost anything. And I think that's probably where you talk about in Wisdom at Work, getting to the council phase where you're helping one. And I think you probably had as much joy seeing the growth in the young entrepreneurs at Airbnb, maybe than you did at Joy de V. Yeah, you know, it was interesting. In Joy de V, there was an element for me that was just so, I could see the value to the business and me helping to give tutelage and, and also becoming an incubator for entrepreneurs in Joy de V where people would come and spend four or five years with us learning the business and then go out and start their own company, which was great. But at Airbnb, because the age difference was so much greater, I was twice the age of the average employee there. It was almost a little bit of, it wasn't exactly a parent-child relationship because I don't think any of the people I was mentoring, I mentored over 100 people there. <laughs> I don't think any of them thought of me as their parent. But I think they what they did feel was like, as one person said, you're my FM. I said, what's an FM? You're my future me. I aspire to be like you when I'm in my 50s. And so the idea that, I mean, generally speaking in American society, Aging is not aspirational, <laughs> unless you're a 12-year-old. Um, as a 25-year-old or a 45-year-old, you don't aspire to age. And so the idea that people could look at me now at age 58 and say, yeah, I want to be like him. And for me, the thing that I got out of it was not just that I was giving back, but the truth is I was feeling a sense of mutual mentorship. Mm. Uh, for example, I probably was best known at Airbnb for being what's considered emotionally intelligent, which was, and how to, how to apply that into your leadership skills. And of course, some of that has been, I documented in many of my books, like Peak. Mm. So I was able to offer EQ. But what I got offered back to me by so many of these millennials who were so smart at the digital world is that they gave me DQ, digital intelligence. So it was almost like a trade agreement, EQ for DQ. It's brilliant. And, and you absolutely learned as much in the digital, like remember, you got asked if, what was the question? If it got, if something got shipped, <laughs> does it yeah, really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No one sees it. Does it really ship? <laughs> I had no idea what they were talking about. Uh, so yeah, at age fifty-two, I joined a tech company and had zero zero experience in the tech world, and so I had to actually be the dumbest person in the room. Wow, you know, I think simplicity is one of the core values of Airbnb, and it's a big thing that we believe in. You know, if you were to simplify some advice for a young founder of a company really interested in growing, growing their people. 
How can you simplify that advice or mentorship? You know, I think there's a great old statement, which is knowledge speaks and wisdom listens. Mm -hmm. And the most wise animal in the forest is perceived as the owl. And it's partly because the owl has the most attuned listening skills. And so a lot of people think that by being wise, it means that you're just spewing wisdom or you're, you're, you know, dispensing all your advice all the time. And I've personally found that there generally, as I've gotten older and maybe wiser, that it sometimes is most important for me to listen really well for what it is that this young person is looking for and needing and not just listen to their story, but listen for their story. Because often there's a theme or a thread throughout a bunch of disparate things they're talking about that sort of gives you the ability to sort of see what is the wisdom that you can offer back to this person. And I also, and I talk about this in the book, Wisdom at Work, Making a Modern Elder. I often look at, there's two roles of giving counsel. One is specifically performance driven and it's very much about specific skills mm. and the other one's development driven which is really speaking to facilitating awareness of them as a human and as a leader and as a manager and um, once you understand which kind of counsel you're giving it helps distinguish between whether you're actually dispensing wisdom and skill and knowledge versus actually taking in their story and then asking really good questions mm. to them. Oh, that's brilliant. I, I know we're at time here, but I want to finish with some ninth inning here. All right. So we're going to first, Chip, I've been grilling you with some questions. You now become the host of Business Done Differently. This is flip the script. So you are the mm -hmm. host. You can ask me any one question. Well, how did you choose yellow, first of all? And where did you get these suits made? I mean, I, I, yeah. That's <laughs> all right. So basically, brightcoloredtuxedos.com. I don't think it exists anymore. I was one of their only returning customers. That's where I started uh -huh. and uh, bought those. Now I own seven. But the whole theme for us is that I believe what we're doing is we're putting on a show. And if we're putting on a show, we can't be dressed like a regular person in a polo and pants needed to be dressed like a showman. And one of my biggest mentors is uh, P.T. Barnum. I've read every book that he's ever come out. And so it became who I was putting on a show. And now I wear it every day. It's my uniform. And the great story you talk about a culture, the last one, I had six. My staff went behind uh, my back and got my sizings and got a tailor to custom fit a new yellow tuxedo for me. And they presented it to me about a year ago and said, Jesse, I know you're speaking around the country. We don't want you to look like a clown anymore. Here is a better fitting yellow tuxedo. And I thanked them. But the reality was I go, guys, I still look like a clown. I'm in a yellow tuxedo. But it was a very nice gesture. That's great. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> it's hard to forget. And as you know, you put up a photo of you and Maverick, yes. um, helping Maverick understand my book. And so I put that out into the world partly because it was cute to see you. Is that your son? Yes, it's my six month old son. Yeah, and your son. But also just because you look just so goofy. Excuse me. <laughs> you, just had, you just look great. I love it. In that suit. So I just think it's, it's you. It's also the Curious George. There's a, yeah. you know, yes. What was the guy's name in Curious George? Well, the, the man in the yellow hat. Man in the yellow hat, yeah. <laughs> You're just taking that a few steps further. Oh, uh, yeah. I've been called a lot of names. But, you know, I believe everyone has something that makes them stand out. And what the whole book, my book, Find Your Yellow Tux, is about amplifying yourself and finding that and standing out. So uh, I appreciate you going to the yellow. It's kind of what I'm known for. And, you know, it's my uniform. It's how you show yeah. up in the world every day. And I show up kind of energy, and that's who I am. So I'll finish a few things here. Questions. You spend so much time talking about <laughs> questions and wisdom at work. And I believe, I think, Sammy, if you want better answers in business and life, you need to ask better questions. And you shared how Eric Schmidt with Google said, we run our company by questions, not answers. What mm -hmm. are some of the best questions you're asking these days? 
Well, I think, you know, questions, there's a form of asking questions called appreciative inquiry. And the whole premise is, how do you use questions to open up curiosity toward interesting answers? You could ask a question, you could have the same situation that asked two different questions and completely change the energy in the room. You could say, we're losing market share, who is to blame? That could be the one path. I wouldn't recommend that path. Mm. The second path is, we're losing market share, our competitors seem to be doing better. What can we learn from them? And what are some new ways we can think about the business to actually regain that market share? Now, that's a, two very different approaches to how you ask a question. The first one, you know, is sort of, it shuts people down and it's very focused on trying to figure out who's to blame. Mm. Whereas the second one sort of says, there's a solution here. Let's figure out how to solve this puzzle. Mm. And so I think, you know, questions are meant to help create discovery and create illumination that creates better conversations. Mm. I've said I spent some time in a company and just listened into a, a leadership meeting just based upon the questions that are being asked. I can tell you a lot about the culture of the company. Yeah, that's brilliant. And I think it's solution-based questions. And it's not about who to blame. It's about how to figure out the solution. I love that. All right, Chip, some quick favorites. All right, your big festival guy, what's your favorite festival? Oh, Burning Man. I'm on the board of Burning Man. Uh, <laughs> and so it's hard for me to say any other one. All right, I'll go with that. Now, this is a tough question. I get asked this all the time. We both read hundreds of thousands of books. But what's a, a favorite book that stands out these days for you? You know, I've always loved Danny Meyer's book, Setting the Table, mm. which is one of the best books written about hospitality. He's the best known restaurateur in the US. Mm. All right, we'll go on that note, big into the hospitality and favorite restaurant. Oh, wow. Favorite restaurant. Gosh, there used to be a restaurant in New York. It's no longer existing anymore called Pure Foods. It was like a high end, healthy restaurant with a beautiful outdoor dining space in the backyard under a big tree. And it was exactly what you wouldn't expect in New York healthy food in an outdoor setting, you know, nature setting in the middle of New York. Unfortunately, it doesn't exist anymore. You're the first person ever to name their favorite restaurant <laughs> as one that doesn't exist. That's, that's, a, yeah. that's a new new one here. Uh, <laughs> I love this. All right, you've been to a lot of business conference, but is there a favorite business conference? You know, we have a lot of listeners that try to learn, curious. Is there one that stands out for you? I like the C2 conference, which is creativity and commerce in Montreal. Uh, it's put on with Cirque du Soleil. So you, you, literally you have a a famous circus group helping to put on a business conference and really creative people there. Oh, that is right up my alley. Thank you for that. All right. The final four here, Chip, what's one thing you've done to stand out in business and in life? I think being a vulnerable visionary, which means that you are open to being emotionally present while at the same time, the visionary piece means you're also confident. Mm -hmm. So I think that combination works. Love it. Now, if you were to give advice to someone just coming up, what would you tell them to stand out in business and in life? Richard Branson, who wrote the foreword for my first book, The Rebel Rules, uh, said to me, when you're starting a business, use the mantra, I am the market, I am the market, I am the market. So only create a business that you would fall in love with yourself. Mm. Now, that's not exactly the best advice for some people, because if you're not the customer, how would you know? But it's, I really think if you're going to start a business, you ideally create a product that you'd fall in love with yourself. Absolutely love that. It's a challenging one too. What's the best advice you've received? The best advice I received from Herb Kelleher, who basically said, the customer comes second, the employee comes first. Yes. Because in any service business, you're going to start with making sure your team is completely respected and recognized because hard for them to do that for your customers if they don't feel it. I love that. Almost every speech I say, love your customers more than you love your product, but love your employees more than your customers. So we're mm -hmm. speaking in the same language. Finally, Chip, how do you want to be remembered? You know, I want to be remembered as somebody who 
proved that you could be a successful business leader, but also be human at the same time. Well said, my friend. The books, Wisdom at Work, Peak, Rebel Rules, Emotional Equations, Chip, you have made a huge impact on my life and I know thousands of other people. How else can people find out more from you? You go to Chip Conley, spelled C-O-N-L-E-Y, chipconley.com. And uh, you'll also read about my most recent book as well as our Modern Elder Academy. Or on LinkedIn, I write articles occasionally. So you'll see a lot of my articles there. Outstanding. Chip, thank you so much for being with us today. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed it. Yes, Jesse. Thank you. I look forward to coming to one of your baseball games. (laughs) Yes, excellent. Thank you for listening to Business Done Differently with Jesse Cole, the Yellow Tux Guy. If you love the show, let Jesse know by leaving a review on iTunes or sending him an email at jesse at findyouryellowtux.com. For more information on the guest and topics of this episode, visit findyouryellowtux.com. Until next time, stop standing still. Start standing out.